Alright, welcome, welcome to another Rags Riches Secrets. Today we're going to cover, this is part 7 of our series, The Fourth Turning, The Beginning of the End by Peter Zion. This, we're going to talk about energy. And by the time we get done going through all of this energy stuff, you're going to have an entirely new appreciation for where we're at in this world and what's coming or what's coming at us so you can see what's at play. So let's take and dive into this. Oil, oil, oil. Okay, in the, so in the former uh, Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan, there is an oil deposit called Kashagam. Kind of weird. These names are just crazy. It's located two miles under the floor of the Caspian Sea in a zone regularly pummeled by 60-mile-an-hour winds. In winter, it is not only... There's not only moving icebergs, but the wind carries um, carries sea spray, which is often entombs the entire offshore production facility in a foot of ice that has bar none the world's most horrible operating conditions. Crazy, huh? And so this is this deposit right here we're talking about. It's a vertical deposit. It's over two miles from top to bottom. It sports wildly variant pressures, leading to Frequent and impressively terrifying blowouts. It's an oil. Uh, its oil is so high in sulfur that the crude must be processed once it hits landfall, generating a mile-wide sulfur bed. Kazakhstan boasts by not by or bar none the world's uh, most technically difficult environment. Like I'm going through this stuff in detail so you can see just how complex some of these oil fields are. So that you can appreciate what it really means when these assets actually come offline. So here's what it takes to bring oil to the factory with these guys. So tapping Kazakhstan requires that the best minds in the entire industry develop fundamentally new technologies to deal with the field's unique challenges. The consortium of companies developing it spent over 150 billion, considerably considerably more than the entire gross domestic product of Kazakhstan at the time. The, the, and 14 years before getting to the first commercial production, startup costs of Kazakhstan's are bar none the world's highest. The running joke in the energy industry is uh, Kashagan is really pronounced cash all gone. What's, what's weird is about this stuff is like, I remember Warren Buffett was talking about this they would do explorations in Germany and type things. And Warren, Warren Buffett says, like, when you take and you spend $150 billion bringing this stuff to, to market, and then Russia does what they've done in the past, which is to all of a sudden they take over all the assets, like in, in this Ukraine war right now. They took and they seized all the assets that all these companies brought to market to be able to make these things productionally viable. And they couldn't actually produce them on their own. So then you ask, well, what's the likelihood anybody would go back into a country like Russia and reinvest when the process is to bring this stuff to market is so incredibly painful. So here, we'll, we'll continue. Kajistan's crude is is, uh, is pumped up, depressur or depressurized, processed in a pipe, more than a thousand miles to the Black Sea, where it is loaded onto small tankers for transit through the Turkish Straits to the Mediterranean, passing through downtown Istanbul before sailing through the Suez Canal to the Black Sea. It is reloaded onto la to long haul super tankers that transport the crude to other to another eight thousand miles past Pakistan, India, through the street through the Strait of Malacca, and by the entirety of the the Vietnamese and Chinese coastlines before hitting its final destination in, in Japan. It's a dicey route. Kazakhstan is a former uh, providence of Russia, and the two don't get along. Turkey fought uh, 11 or more wars with Russia, and they don't get along. Egypt is the former providence of Turkey. They don't get along. Saudi Arabia considers Kazakhstan an economic com competitor, and they don't get along. The route passes by Pakistan, India, who do not get along. Vietnam and China who do not get along, China and Japan who do not get along, and oh, and there's pirates in the Red Sea um, uh, and Malacca as well. The Kashagan uh, export route is bar none the world's riskiest route. It's like if this uh, it's like a bewildering Frankenstein that it took to bring this asset to market. And it could never, ever exist unless it was under a, a global order. As long as there was lots of money, financing was cheap, everything was in perfect, like perfect harmony, 
would something like this have any possibility of ex existing? And the problem is, is going into the future, at some point, this will not exist. The whole thing is going to shut down. And so, um, one of the things about oil is, it's because it's in a liquid form, it, it increases our capacity to move at far distances, over thousands of on or thousands of miles. On-demand electricity, directly or indirectly, made possible by oil and similar impact upon productivity. For the first time in history, we could do anything, go anywhere at any time, even better. For the first time, we didn't need to be the most powerful empire in the area, but instead, every individual person could actually have access to this. Once your home was wired, everyone can have electricity at low cost. Uh, unlike wood or coal, oil-based liquid fuels such as gasoline or diesel are so energy dense and so easily stored that we can store them with we can store them within modes of transportation. Without oil, the global American order would not exist. It wouldn't have a chance. We wouldn't have passenger cars. We wouldn't have global food, dis food, or food distribution or global manufacturing or global health care or the shoes that are on your feet. Oil is in basically everything. And the only thing, like, I don't know, the only thing that it, it's just geography. The geography pretty much determines everything. Um, oil, uh, oil is not quite that perfect. The restrictions in oil consists upon lots of technologies, but instead of being um, instead of just one source, oil fields feel no obligation to exist in locations that are convenient um, for the entirety of the industrial age. Getting oil from where it exists to where it needs to be has always been a gnarly, gnarly process. Gnarly, gnarly process trying to figure out how to get it to where you want it. So. Okay. Um, our, okay. Let's take a look at this. There are no, there are only so many ways you can advance the human condition. So this is how people historically have always tried to figure out how do I take an advance. So number one, they can go conquer a big old chunk of land and take over it. Number two is they can give everybody a stake in the system so that everybody tries to make the economy work. Uh, number three is they can just drive back. Um, you can drive back night. And, and manufacture the most rarest things of time, which is, or commodities, which is time. Oil has allowed us to create, in essence, more time to get more stuff done. Like, you had a spinning jenny kind of back in the old days, kind of old school, right? So, like, if we go up in London, they would only typically have about eight hours a day. And that's assuming it's not raining. So, collectively, it was mostly dark most of the time. And so... It didn't generate enough light, so then they could use candles. But you don't, if you have candles that doesn't make enough light, it's probably not really great to have candles around something such as cotton, which is a fabulous fire starter. And so then we, we industrialized, so to speak, with the, rel, uh, the, oil, the uh, well revolution or well oils. But, I mean, you could take and use well oils. There used to be millions of wells. And they did everything from creating light, lubrications, and sometimes you could have a stake on the side. Problem is, is there used to be millions, and then as the millions just started dropping down to thousands, the cost of well oil started to increase. And so, like, so one of the other sources we could use is, is you could use, we could use uh, coal, and we had some breakthroughs with coal, because... One of the challenges you got with coal is that common danger is this coal uh, creates methane gas and it's, and it's a substance that's known to be highly uh, explosive. So you can, it, 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 basically it's an alternative natural gas. You got cow farts um, and coal gas. Okay, problem is, is it can create asphyxiation and cause explosions. So there's, there's risks with that. Um, risks, let's see, you can have uncontrollable risks We've actually figured out how to start processing coal um, or the methane from it so we can start powering street lamps and stuff. And a lot of this started taking place like uh, in England. So you got England, uh, American Northwest, and Germany. Um, all you needed to do is just figure out how you could get, oh, and then like kerosene came into place so you could have kerosene lamps. And so the technology got kind of started helping us make some sort of breakthroughs in here. Um, so like nearly simultaneous technological breakthroughs in American Poland in the early 1850s proved 
It was far cheaper, faster, and safer to source kerosene from something that was known at the time was uh, rock oil. Today, we know it, call it crude oil or just simply oil. So this is where we're figuring out how, how the landscape started to come into play and we started discovering oil. Um, this it started bubbling up is we started discovering uh, crude oil. It was it was actually discovered in ancient times. There was the Bazatines or Byzantines. Each used oil sources to make party favors known as the Greek fire uh, for their enemies. While the Zorantines preferred to light the steps of the fire steps on fire to ensure the party never ended. The problem was volume. They just struggled to figure out how to get this oil. They'd find oil seeps so then they could capture a little bit of oil, but you're only talking small amounts of oil. And what we needed was a considerable amount of oil. And so obviously there was some considerable limitations. Well, a breakthrough took place in America and it was in 1858 by uh, one Edward Drake. And what he did is he applied some railway, uh, railway engine parts to a vertical drilling outside of Tootsville, Pennsylvania. And within weeks, he had the first ever oil producing more crude oil than a couple hours than the seeps, and then we could get difference from seeps in years. So within a short weeks, um, kerosene proved so cheap that well oil all but vanished from the lighting and lubrication market. Then we started applying material sciences and expertise we had only recently gained from tinkering with coal to this new world of oil. Oil at this point, oil was no longer merely a product that needed, that needed to push back um, night and, and slick gears, but it became the material that allowed us to do everything. And I mean, and we simply needed more and more and more, and it just continued to explode. You'll see how powerful this is. Is like is we're taking we're leading up to World War II control of oil so that we could get to and from locations so that we could transport vehicles like the war World War II basically it, you either had you either had oil so you could take and operate your forces or you were so to speak using a horse and buggy um, if you didn't actually have access to oil oil became the determining factor on determining which side could actually take and win. And so the United States fortunately had oil because in the absence of oil, it would have been a very, very different outcome of that particular war. So would have been so like a lot of the oil that we took and we we, we used was came out of Pennsylvania, Texas. Um, and basically it just totally reshaped how the end of the war took and played out. So okay. Um, what we did after the end of World War II. We literally stepped in, because we knew oil was so important, we literally stepped in and we started bribing the world, so to speak, saying we will create easy access to oil so that you can get from here to there to every other location. But the lubricant that allowed everything to take place was allowing access to oil. And the United States was a major player or major production house of generating oil so that the world had access to it. We, we, had, uh, we had navies that were sufficient to be able to patrol the oceans to make this happen. And so, here we go. Um, it was the lubricant. It kept everything together. But here's the thing that happened. As we became successful, it's like the, the gold system. Like, we, we had the, uh, the gold-backed dollar. And the problem is, as long as there was enough gold to support all the currency in the world, we were fine. But as success created more success and we needed to multiply the gold, multiply the gold, multiply the gold because there's more and more commerce. Problem is, is in the end, there was not enough gold. And we literally backed ourselves into the exact same corner again because we patrolled the world making sure everybody had access to oil. And as success created more success and it created more success and created more success, before long, we painted ourselves into a corner where it's like, holy crap, we don't even have enough for our own demands anymore. So by the 1970s, economic growth back home had reached a point that the, American, the Americans' own energy demand outstripped its production capability. Not only the Americans no longer could fuel their allies, but they couldn't even fuel themselves. And in many ways, it was the same problem that ultimately gutted the gold standard. Uh, success begot success, which begot more success, which then begot failure. 
The Arab uh, oil embargo of 1973 to 1979 turned what had been, until then, a hypothetical discussion uh, in American into a brass tax. Without sufficient volumes of affordable oil, the entire order would collapse. The American, the British actions included sponsoring a coup in Iran in 1953 to overthrow the semi-democratic system in favor of a pro-American monarch. The American actions included the largest American uh, expeditionary military action since World War II as part of, part of forcibly ejecting Iraq troops from Kuwait in 1992. Remember that? Kuwait War. We're like, get out of here. We've got to figure out how to protect the oil, the worldwide oil, uh, global, the, oh, I'm chewing it up, man. We need to protect the oil supply. And so, basically, with the, you know, at the, the end of the Cold War, so you got Berlin Wall, all this stuff fell down. So, the Russia and the post-Soviet Union collapse hit Russia's industries harder than any oil product, um, than the oil production. Was a sur surplus reaching uh, global markets, American firms entered former Soviet republics, most, most notably Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan, to bring ever larger volumes of crude to the world. We just needed oil. Like places where you wouldn't want to be, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with, all of a sudden became relevant because we needed more and more and more. So throughout the entire period of 1945 on, the process earned the Americans no small amount of umbrage from, well, pretty much everyone. Europe, Europeans resented losing their colonies because we helped break some of that stuff up. Um, the newly fed colonies disliked the American efforts to corral them into a block to contain, uh, uh, to contain the country, the, so the, the Soviet Union, uh, <clears throat> that few had any previous contact. The Arabs world didn't appreciate the Americans forcing them into the energy cog, which is known as the Bretton Woods machine, much less attempting to make them uh, bedfellows with, with, with the Israelis. Okay, the Mexicans begrudged Washington's heavy-handed approach. The post-Soviet Russian hated the American, uh, Americans expressly to undermine their influence in their own backyard. The Iranians really didn't appreciate the American coup, or didn't appreciate the coup. Um, the large scale simply kept increasing. With the dawn of the Bretton Woods era, the entire alliance um, used 10 million barrels per day, the majority of which was sourced from the United States, uh, from the United States itself. By 1990, the, the advanced members of the coalition were using well over, well over double that, 90% which was imported. And with the Americans all by themselves importing another, see it's crazy, we, we shifted in that time frame, the 1990s, we shifted from an exporter to an importer and we were importing 8 million barrels of oil today or per day. With the Cold War ended and the rules of order, uh, the, the order going truly global, an entire new raft of countries joined the party and added their own demands to the oil. Price hit record highs of $150 a barrel in 2008. Remember that? All of a sudden, oil just went up and up and up and up and up. And here's like the, the, the culmination of things that blew up or fell apart at that time that drove it up. That's a 15-fold increase in the cost of oil from just simply a decade earlier. And global demand hit 85 million barrels of oil per day. So what had begun as an effort to subsidize a military alliance with the American crude had um, he uh, had uh, devolved into a bloated, unsustainable, above all expensive mess that the Americans themselves were economically dependent on. With the Cold War's end, the Americans may have wanted to take a less active role in global affairs. They may have wanted to be, be disengaged, but a single global oil price meant that in doing so would would risk uh, instability supply shortages, and oil so high as to wreck the American economy. The Americans had become economically trapped in their own outdated security policy. We became so dependent on oil to do everything. And as we go through this, you're going to see what oil, like it's not just transportation. It's not just being able to get from A to Z. 
Oil is so much integrated into our everyday lives that once you understand how how influential oil is in your daily life, you'll be like, dude, like, like Biden, you're trying to unwind oil. Like, good luck with that. Um, all right, so let's take a look at the map of it. Oil in 2022. Okay, here's here's the most notably most important areas for oil in the entire world. So obviously one of the most notable is the Persian Gulf, is the Persian Gulf. They have boatloads of oil. Um, collectively, we try to avoid the Middle East altogether. It's just kind of a mess. So Middle East from Egypt to Persia, uh, or let, so if any of these, anyway, we, we just try to avoid all that altogether, but you can't, right? Um, oil changes things. So the real explosive activity happened later with the discovery, discovery and exploration oil deposits throughout the territory that is known um, as Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Oman. Now we can't avoid them anymore because we discovered boatloads of oil sitting inside those countries in locations where we would rather not be at all. And so it changed things. As of, 20, as of 2021, 20 million barrels uh, is roughly one-fifth of the global supply and half of internationally traded oil. That's what comes out of there. It's just enormous amounts. These eight countries have two things in common. First, they are technologically incompetent and at very best, criminally lazy. These guys have no idea they're sitting on piles of oil. They have no idea how to manage it, how to process it, how to do anything with it. And so what it really requires is, is they have to import people from, they have to import workers from the United States, United Kingdom, Russia, um, France, Turkey, Algeria, Egypt, just to be able to keep the, the crude oil flowing in their countries. So the second problem that they have, um, as technically incompetent as they are, they're even... They are even less competent when it comes to naval act, uh, naval uh, actions. They don't they don't have a way to protect their ability to ship and to deliver the oil to the end destinations, and so as a result, they are highly vulnerable. So and none of these have the capacities to patrol their own coastlines, much less their trade approaches, much less uh, trade lanes upon which their income, their entire existence depends. Wow. Imagine that. You you got boatloads of, uh, of oil, but you have no way to secure yourself. So the order may have made it possible. Um, okay, the order may not have been possible without these countries. Oil, but neither would these countries have ever been possible while the strategic overwatch of the order. Now you start playing into the former Soviet Union. Things get really interesting when you start dealing with the former, so former Soviet Union and its collapse. See, Russia had scalds of spare oil that they needed to find new homes. In the first wave of post-Soviet ex uh, exports, the Russians uh, focused on applying what they knew. They figured out how to start getting oil out of their country. So like Germany became a high consumer of it. So you got Germany that started consuming piles of Russian oil got Central Europe into Western Germany, Australia, Western Balkans, and, and Turkey. All of these guys started taking it. And so the Russians, they, they really began filling a larger and larger slice of demand, but market saturation started to actually decrease their price at a, at a, at a point in time. But here's the thing with Russia. Russia, like when you think of Russian crude oil and, and getting oil to the market, that thing is a packed that thing is packed full of crazy amounts of mess. We'll go through this and you're going to see just how problematic Russia is in being able to bring oil to the marketplace. So most of Russian oil fields are both old and extraordinarily remote from Russian customers. Fields in the northern Caucasus, I don't know how you say it, Caucasus, something like that, um, are all but tapped out. Those in Tarstan, Tar. Tarastan and, and, and Bashkortostan uh, are well past their well past their peaks. Even those in Western Siberia have been showing sign of diminishing returns for more than a decade. With a few exceptions, Russians' newer uh, discoveries are deeper, smaller, 
technologically more challenging and even farther from population centers. Russian's output isn't in danger of collapsing, but maintaining output will require more infrastructure, far higher costs up front, and ongoing technical love and care to prevent a steady out, uh, out, uh, to prevent steady output declines from becoming something far worse. So check this out. This is like the Russians are no. See, you see that it's very problematic. They're they're not. It's not that they have no interest in it, but what they do have in place is diminishing. And then the new things that they're finding are not as 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 productive as their old ones. But see, it says Russian oil Russians are no slouch when it comes to oil, but they were out of circulation from 1940 through 2000. The technique and uh, the text. Inv uh, the techs involved became a long way, or, or techniques or techni technical capabilities came a long way in that time. Foreigners, most notably BP, so that's a British company, um, and firms such as Halliburton and Slumberjay are, are responsible for half-ish of contemporary Russian output. Any broad-scale removal of Western firms from the mix would have catastrophic impacts upon the oil production throughout the entire former Soviet Union. The Ukraine war, the the Ukraine war is, is stress testing this uh, theory. It's it's crazy. Like Russia's ability to generate cash is its ability to get along with Americans and stuff, so that we can go in there and we can provide the technical expertise for them to pull the oil out of the ground. Because this is like in crazy remote places like Siberia, places where you just can't access. Fact as we go through here, you're going to see how inaccessible these places are. And then we got this Ukraine war, which means these guys are moving themselves into obsolescence. So, like companies such as Slumberjay, who is critical to making this work, you have Halliburton, which is critical to making this work, and BP, which is critical to making this work. Russia annexed or took over, consumed, or confiscated all of their assets and took them in house. Like we're going to go back. Good luck with that, right? And so it, it gets crazy. So here's here's their trade routes. And then there's the issue of export routes. All of the border regions, um, regions oil flows first, travel, they got first travel by pipe, and in some cases for literally thousands of miles before they reach the customer uh, for discharge ports. Pipes can't dodge. So anything that impedes a single inch of pipe shuts the whole thing down. In in the order, that's fine and daddy. Post order. Not so much. About half of the flows terminate in users like Germany. Well, the other half, see, and even the one in Germany, that thing got blown up. So now that, that pipeline going into Germany came offline. Well, the other half must be loaded on tankers for sale. That's where things get extra dicey. In the Pacific, the, um, the Nakholduk. Port sits smack dab in the middle of uh, Chinese or Japanese, Chinese, and Korean spheres of influence. Any meaningful conflict in any of these three and the Nakhodak, oh my gosh, these words are crazy, become either occupied or cratered. On the west, exports from the Black Sea to the Novorossi um, and Tau, uh, Topsy. That's another location. Are fully dependent upon sales through through downtown Istanbul. So any hiccup in relations with the Turkish kills a couple million barrels of uh, daily flow. Further north, anything out of Primorsk has to sell by the Baltic Sea and the Chagra Chagra Chagrock Straits, um, selling no further than uh, seven naval. Um, seven naval uh, overly capable to their size countries that tend to nurse pathological fears and hatreds towards all things Russia. In Germany, in addition to Germany, in addition to the United Kingdom, even if that were not enough, there's one more complicating factor. Siberia, despite getting cold enough to literally freeze the nose off your face in October, doesn't actually get cold enough. This is where it gets really crazy. The Russian oil production uh, is in the permafrost and most of the summer the permafrost is inaccessible because its top layer melts into a messy horizon spanning swamp tapping oil here requires waiting for the land to freeze building dikes roads across the wasteland drilling into the siberian winter 
Should something happen to consumption of Russian crude flow back, flow back uh, up through the literally thousands of miles of pipes right up to the drill head? Export, should exports fail, whether due to a war far away or on Russia or by Russia, there is, there is but one mitigation. Shut it all down. Turning production back on would require manually checking everything all the way from the well to the border. The last time this happened was when the Soviet collapsed, Soviet Union collapsed in 1989. 33 years, crazy, 33 years on at the time of this rioting, Russia, uh, Russia still hasn't got back to its Cold War production levels. Only during oil ravenous stability in the post-Cold War uh, period of the American-led order uh, in the current iteration of Russian in, uh, internationalized oil complex is even possible. The, with the, 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 the Ukraine war, this thing is already baked. See, Russia's, Russia's oil is not, like when you think of Russia, think of Russia as a big freaking gas tank. They got fertilizer and they have, they got wheat and they have, they have oil. But majority of the oil is only possible as a result of their, their collaboration with Americans. All it, had, all it takes is any sort of disruption in the oil and that entire thing, that entire pipeline all the way up to the permafrost, it would break, it would snap. They would have to fix everything, and they literally don't have the ability to do it. And the only time you can do it is fix it during the winter when the ground is actually hard enough. And trying to operate in those conditions is actually unreal. Hence, they don't have the technical expertise to even solve their own problem. It's crazy. And so, like, if it gets really bad, like, we, we could disrupt that pipeline, and, and Russia would literally come offline forever. Um, okay, so the next place is Canada. So Canada produces far more than it could ever use. It consumes a similar amount to Mexico, but exports that much again. Almost all of Alberta's sand oil production is shipped um, ships south to the United States, mostly for processing in Texas. And then you got the Gulf of, Gulf of Mexico, which really didn't get going until the 1970s. So these are sources that come online. Now, the Americans, where we're at, we've got the kind of our legacy um, hubs that still kick out a lot of oil. We still get 4 million barrels of oil per day out of the legacy. But where the real revolution took place or transpired is in the American Shell Oil uh, Revolution. So back in the early 2000s, the world got its first uh, got uh, oil. Okay, back in the early 2000s, the world of, uh, of oil got slammed by four simultaneously unrelated events. So the first thing that took place... The U.S. subprime built and was already getting out of hand, generating unhealthy levels of demand for all things that go into home construction. So lumber, concrete, copper, steel, and oil. Second, the Chinese boom was getting a touch insane. Um, price, price insensitivity de uh, demand drove up the price of all global commodities, including oil. So the thing, third thing that kicked off is in 2002, a very unsuccessful coup in Venezuela led to a very successful political purge of the, the country's state of oil, a purge that focused on the techno... Anyway, it screwed up all the technology as far as the oil. Um, Venezuela actually just never recovered from that. So the fourth blow that we took and received happened in 2004. The Americans invaded Iraq and all things oil in its... Um, all, all, of its, all of its production came offline in Iraq. So, so the countries, the countries like, and it never returned to its previous production capabilities. So, so between higher demand and lower supplies of oil steadily climbed from, it used to be $10 a barrel in 1998 to nearly $150 a barrel in 2008. Crazy. So if you got... If, if oil goes from $10 to $150, at $10, you just do the same thing you always did. You just got to, you can't, you can't deal with any little ripples or anything, right? There's just not enough profit. But $150 a barrel, you can do all kinds of crazy Eric's experimentation. And this experimentation led to one of the biggest booms that we know is sh um, shell oil or fracking. 
under a different term. So within a few years of experimentation, the Collective American Energy Complex was able to crack the code on something that we know now as the Shell Revolution. So what it is, what it, the Shell Revolution is, is you just drill down into the earth like normal, but then <clears throat> what you do is you start drilling horizontally along along uh, the along uh, an oil layer. Okay, and then you start pumping high pressure into the formations, start pumping sand and all kinds of stuff into it. It holds the cracks open, freeing trillions of teeny pockets of oil that can then come out. Boom, the Shell Revolution. With the introduction of the Shell Revolution, America became energy independent. In fact, we even stepped into becoming an actual exporter. And so this is this is this is crazy. Um, it is not uncommon now for a for a um, for a shell oil deposit to kick out five thousand barrels of oil a day, um, which then put us on par with some of the most prolific wells of Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Collectively, um, these changes have added ten million barrels a day, making the United States the second largest producer of oil in the world, where simultaneously enabled it to achieve oil independence. You'll see as we go later on, we actually became we actually become the largest oil um, producer in the entire world as a result of this technology. Um, the world's energy map is radically different in 2022 compared to how it looked just 15 years ago because the world's largest uh, importer has become a net ex exporter. That's us. The Shell Revolution has changed the strategic map that underpins the global energy sector and with it globalization as a whole. Changed everything. So it's cool. So when it comes to oil inside the entire world, there's no amount of ways in which this thing could possibly... There are so many problems in the world that there, that oil could become a major, major catastrophic event in the entire world. So here's how things go. Here's here's like a whole list of ways things could go wrong in the world. So, so all of a sudden the United States is like, hey, we've got enough oil. We're oil independent. Let's pull off. Let's just stop patrolling the ocean. Well, as soon as that happens and we start pulling it out, the Persian Gulf becomes dangerous. It leaves the Iranians, the Saudis to argue over who's actually the boss in the region. That, that, that region right there accounts for 26.5 million barrels per day. So then you can go over to the Indias. Indias re react to rising oil prices by seeding tankers bound for East Asia. No, no Asian power has the capacity to project naval forces to the Persian Gulf without active Indian complacency. That's 21 million barrels a day. Egypt, through the Suez Canal, there's another 4.25 uh, million barrels per day. Like, all of this stuff flows through places that are highly, highly dangerous. Um, in the absence of Americans' naval power, piracy... Booms off the coast of West and East Africa. There's another 3.5 million barrels a day that can go up in smoke. Um, Russians are very have very different views from the Norwegians, Swedes, Finns, Poles, uh, Estonians, Leviticans, um, Lithuanians, and Danes. And so the way all that goes to and from, there's another 2 billion barrels a day at risk. Um, on another trade route, there's another 2 billion at risk. Okay. Um, now we look at relationships between, uh, let's see, the Russian, there's another, there's another 5 billion oils a day that's at Rusk with Russia with, uh, between Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. Okay. Um, Islamist related security concerns. So Iraq, Saudi Arabia, there's another 2 million barrels a day and another 6 million six million barrels a day well two million for iraq six million for the saudi arabias um the international politics of the west and central african nations are exceedingly violent from 1967 to 1970 nigeria fought a civil war over who got to control the country's oil resulting in the deaths of some two million people removal of the american overwatch and things could get really nasty fast there's another 2 million barrels in Nigeria at risk um, and another 1.5 million barrels a day from areas surrounding that. So without Russia and China um, bonding over their hate, 
hatred of the United States, oil shipments from the former to the latter are hardly sustained. Uh, the two the two countries nearly nuked each other in the 1960s over territorial disputes. Both people are impressively racist towards one another, uh, and if and if Russia and never uses um, energy leverage over China, well then China would be the only country that Russia hasn't uh, played this hand with. So we've got another risk of 1.8 million barrels a day. Um, and as you can see, I mean, there's just there all of this stuff is all screwed up. Like everybody doesn't get along with everybody, and collectively it's all an entire mess. So what it is is as long as the United States has an invested interest in maintaining the oil flows for both its economy as well as that of the uh, strategic its strategic partners, then things work. Um, but we have the military acumen to do it. Um, the second major problem that we have, so if Americans pull back, the second major problem is, is producing oil is never free. It often time isn't even cheap. So this is Venezuela. There was a recent announcement, I swear, that was down in Venezuela where we're going to start trying to pull oil online from there. So, but, but here's, here's the problem from Venezuela. Venezuela oil production is so difficult that upfront investments um, amount to roughly $4,000 per barrel of long-term long -term oil production. In a late and modern cheap uh, capital, that eminently is doable. But in a constrained, constrained financial systems of the disorder, not so much. Here's the third thing that's coming into play that can disrupt it all. Third, due to concentration of oil or supply, oil is the product that sells the farthest to reach its destination. Um, the longer the sell, the more important it is to have calm security. It's crazy. Like oil has to just go thousands of thousands of miles to its end destination. Um, all right, so here's number four that can screw this the whole thing up. Uh, oil projects are not quick. Typically, onshore products our projects require um, six years between first uh, through what's well, from three to six years from first evaluation to first production. Uh, offshore uh, projects typically take a decade or more. I mean, what you see those those guys drilling, drilling big old holes down in the ocean trying to pull that up. Like if it's if the world's not calm, how are we going to extract that out of the ground when it takes a decade or more for it to come to market? So. Recovering from any disruption of this is going to become very, very difficult. Achieving the magic uh, constellation of security factors, cost inputs, technical skills to access the, the successful long-term frame to produce crude in the first place simply won't be viable for a large portion of the world. Once production goes offline, balance packs simply won't be in the cards as for the vast majority of locations. Um, certainly not a quick one. Here is a very, very key data put or data input. Okay, check this out. Forty percent of global supply falls into the Kashigan style bucket. Like, and that's that's what I was talking about at the very beginning. This was an extremely difficult, precarious way to bring oil to market. So, forty percent of the entire global oil all falls into this crazy bucket that is. It's one, it's too dangerous. The routes are too dangerous to, uh, to survive a globalization end. They're too expensive projects to maintain without outside financing. And they're too technically difficult to operate without uh, an army of out-of-region workers. Basically, it's all, it's all screwed up if the world is not in perfect peace and people don't have access to highly, highly technical capability to bring it to market. Um, so the absence of oil for just, uh, just weeks, never mind a few decades would more than be enough to crash the, the modern civilization as we know it. So let's take a look at oil, oil, oil. People think, well, yeah, we just use oil for cars. Yeah. We just don't use oil for, dude, we have no idea how, how pervasive oil is. So check this out. Here's where you see it. Oils and shingles. Shingles on your roof, the phone in your hand, the spatula in your kitchen, to the pipes and the hoses and the plumbing inside your house, the diapers on your kid, to the painting on the walls, to the daily commute to and from to and from work across the ocean. Any slight increase in demand for oil will result in major price swings, not proportional. Perhaps even more important, oil is the transport fuel. No oil, 
No, your car doesn't work. Neither does giant container ships would bring you all that good stuff and shiny stuff from Korea and all that stuff. Think of LG. Think of uh, Mitsubishi. Think of think of products coming from Japan. Think like oil allows all of it to take place. So here's a good rule of thumb: uh, a change in ten percent. Okay, good rule of thumb is that a change in demand of about ten percent results in a price shift of around seventy-five percent. During the 2000s, when supply and demand were particularly out of whack, it didn't take long for prices to increase 500%. Similarly, when the American subprime bubble burst in the context of the global financial crisis, the subsequent drop in demand quickly made oil give back four-fifths of all those price gains. Whew, crazy. So check out, here's, here's kind of a breakdown of distances so you can see how far oil transports across the world to get to its end, end, end destinations. So the Persian Gulf oil, it must travel somewhere between 5,000 to 7,000 miles to Eastern Asia um, destinations, and somewhere between 3,000 to 6,000 miles to European destinations, and somewhere between 5,000 to 9,000 miles to American destinations. Venezuela has probably the longest supply chain route in the world. It has 12,000 mile journey just to make it to China. Problem with these things is oil tankers are very easy to identify. They're very large. They move very slow. They're skiffing across the pond. And if somebody says, hey, we don't have any oil, oh, and they go through very tight locations that are not necessarily unhostile locations. So as they go through these things, all of a sudden, they're very easy to identify. It's like, dang, we don't have any oil. Okay, well, there's a there's a sitting duck out on the pond. Let's go get some oil. So you can see it's very challenging, okay? Um, so for most places throughout the entire world, bringing a supply of oil online is not actually very easy, um, except when it comes to, like, shell oil. Um, we actually need a few weeks to, to bring shell oil online. Russia doesn't have it. Russia doesn't have it. They don't have the technical expertise. They don't have the capital. They don't, they don't know how to do it. Russia straight up doesn't know how to do it, so they're screwed. Um, Argent, Argentina, um, that's actually the second most advanced shell sector in the entire market. And so they have, they have some demographics that are very similar to ours, so they can bring it online. Now, France has a chance of surviving because France and Turkey also look fairly good both are these are we're talking about um, places that have some of these places actually have a chance of surviving if, if, if something breaks down in the global order so France Turkey they look pretty good both are have are approximate to region regional energy producers they got Algeria uh, Libya for France Azerbaijan and, and Iraq for Turkey United Kingdom uh, India Japan are up next uh, all of these adventures are out, but they have naval forces to protect the oil to get it to market. So the Brits are looking pretty good because they can just jump over to Norway and get supplies. British can also reach out to West Africa to get the balance of it. The Indians look pretty good, too. The Persian Gulf is only just a, a short jump away. Um, Japan will face the greatest risk of disruption, shortages, and higher prices, but they got a military that can help, help them out. Everybody else in the world is screwed. Like nobody else in the entire world that wasn't just mentioned is pretty much in a very, very bad spot if, if, if the global order starts breaking down and they cannot, we cannot, we, they don't have the military capability to secure their oil supplies and they're just straight up screwed. Um, okay, there's, there's a whole lot more to oil than just very, the very thought of oil. So we've already done a little bit of a list, but let's say um, here, here's okay oil. This that when you when you start looking at oil processing oil, not all oils created the same, and so it's very very different. And so no two, no two crude oil streams have the same the exact same chemical makeup. Some are gooey and laden with impurities, most commonly sulfur, and can make up to three percent of, of crude oil by volume. Such crudes are called heavy sours. Some, like Canadian oil sands, are so heavy that in a, that uh, are solid at room temperatures. 
Others are pure and have a color and consistency of nail polish and remover and are called light sweets. Basically, all of this oil, the, the oil that comes out of the ground is, is, has to be sent to a very specific refinery. You can't, you can't up and retool a refinery to process a different source of oil. They're, the refineries are very, very specific. And introducing the wrong crude or the wrong type of oil to the wrong refinery would actually cause billions of dollars of damage and it would disrupt it and screw it up and the next thing you wouldn't have any production. So the problem is, is you can't, every, yeah, it's, it's just nuts. Like it doesn't even matter if they make a new discovery because a new discovery requires a new refinery and the refinery is tooled to that very specific, that, that very specific location. So now any disruptions down chain, up chain, or anywhere in the entire supply chain whacks out the entire chain. Where there, it's just so, it, it's crazy how how specialized this oil is to the equipment that processes it. Um, so a one percent loss on a refiner has massive impacts. Um, we're looking at a lot more than one percent loss moving from um, moving forward. As we start, as the global order starts falling apart, this is going to be a very, very large problem. Um, oil, the thing, cool thing about oil, it's a liquid. So here's what oil can be done with, or can be done with oil. It can be moved by pipe, or on barge, or on tanker, or truck. It can be stored in non-pressurized tanks. Large oil tankers at major ports uh, even have floating lids that rise and fall with the sea level. There is no way whatsoever we're going to do that with something such as natural gas. Natural gas really is highly flammable. It's highly explosive. Typically, it needs to be transported through um, through pipes. And when it's not transported by a pipe, it can go through a very, very costly process of being um, pressurized, cooled off, so that it can become into a liquefied natural gas, or it's an LNG. That only makes up about 15% of the global supply. Really, it's just very, very expensive to take and to do that. So collectively, it's just oil. When people think, hey, we're going to be done with oil. Hey, and you consider that oil is in your food packaging, your medical equipment, detergents, coolants, footwear, tires, adhesives, sport equipment, luggage, diapers, paints, inks, chewing gum, lubricants, uh, insulation, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, the second largest component of material inputs, paper, pharmaceuticals, clothes, um, furniture, construction, glass, consumer electronics, automotive, home appliances, and furnishing. Oil is in absolutely everything. Where are we going like, to do to substitute what oil is, is, it does for us? So collection, the, the whole point, this chapter as I went through this, uh, or this, this whole section, is 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 absolutely ass or, or crazy to think that we are somehow going to be done with oil in any any time any like at in the future at any point of time. You guys already know that I love solar. I'm totally interested in solar. Solar does a lot of things. Much of the world is not very equipped whatsoever at all to be able to operate on solar. In fact, the month of December, since it hasn't been since the sun hasn't been up, collectively I've almost produced no power. For my solar panels in the entire month of December because this year was unusually cloudy, unusually snow heavy, which meant that we had to figure out how to source oil from other places. And oil happens to be one of those things. Okay, this is another Rags Rich Secrets where we're talking about the beginning from the end so you can figure out how to position yourself so you can figure out how to invest so that you can make sure that you come out a winner at the end of this game. And I will talk to you.